This is God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. Most of us would know how comforting it is to come home after an extended period of time away. I remember living in Canada for several months and I lived uh, in a little apartment above a shawarma place. If anyone knows what shawarma is, like kebabs. And uh, I basically, my apartment constantly smelt of garlic and it was hot. It was in the summer of Canada. It wasn't, I loved Canada, but it wasn't really a pleasant place to live. And I remember coming home after five or six months over there and just entering into my house and having such a sense of relief and just this peace that came over me. And most of us could relate to that, whether we've lived above a shawarma place or not, coming home after some time is a beautiful thing. It's nice to have this sense of home. Now in our passage today, Jesus himself is providing tremendous comfort to his disciples as he talks about their home. But the home that he's talking about isn't so much about a physical location, Uh, Though that is a reality, it's not so much about a physical location of home, but it's more about the relational proximity that they have to God in Jesus Christ that makes it home. That's what this is about, this relational proximity to Jesus that makes it home. And Jesus is talking about this home that is going to be of great comfort to them through the troubles of this world. Now, Their hearts are troubled. And so Jesus gives this comforting words because there's really an atmosphere of heaviness among the disciples. So Jesus has just announced to the disciples that um, one of them will betray them. That's Judas. And then after that, he says that in verse 33, he is going away and they cannot come to where he is going. Adds to the heaviness. And then even after that, we saw last week that Peter one of the most prominent disciples, boldly confesses that he will lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus says in front of everyone, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So there's a, a heaviness over the disciples. It's like the type of silence that you get if you know, we all got together in one room and someone then said, the doctor says, I've got a week to live. Just a bombshell like that. And there's a silence. There's a heaviness. There's a trouble, an inner turmoil in their hearts. And Jesus clearly recognizes this. So in the beginning of our passage, he says in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. He he is comforting them. Jesus is a comforter. Let not your hearts be troubled. He, He recognizes their distress, not simply because he is God in the flesh, but because he has experienced this kind of trouble and turmoil. He's experienced this. We saw this multiple times in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. John, the gospel writer, refers to Jesus being troubled in his soul or troubled in his spirit. 
the idea of trouble is like literally that twisting of your insides when you feel so troubled inside that it feels like your your stomach is just being twisted and that's what jesus has experienced and that's what his disciples are experiencing but even as christ is experiencing this kind of distress in increasing measure as he is now drawing upon his hour of humiliation jesus seeks to comfort his disciples in his turmoil he seeks to comfort their distress and turmoil so jesus says let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me this is a word of reassurance It's a word of comfort. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's Jesus calling them to trust him. To believe is to trust. And so he's saying, trust me. Though there's a lot of uncertainty and though I'm about to leave, you need to trust me. Just as I often explain to Lewis as I'm about to leave. And if I don't explain anything to Lewis as I go into another room and I disappear, he has an absolute meltdown. But if I calmly explain to Lewis, even though he can't even uh, talk, but he can understand. And I say, Lewis, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to be away. And then I'm going to come back and we'll do this and this and this. And he does his, yep, understands. And it's a dramatic difference. He'll have a total meltdown if I don't explain that. But if I carefully explain, hey, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. What I'm really doing is saying, Lewis, trust me. I'm a trustworthy guy. I'm your dad. I'm going to be back. And it's kind of similar to what Jesus is doing here. He's about to leave. The disciples are going to be in an utter meltdown. And if you and I think we would be any different, we are sorely mistaken. We would be in utter um, despair as our Savior leaves and we don't know where he is going. And so Jesus is saying, trust me. I know your hearts are troubled and, and there's going to be even more turmoil to come. But trust me. Trust me that I am going to work this for my glory and you will rejoice in that. And again, notice that it's not simply a blind faith. We've spoken before about the George Michael approach of how people think, well, I've just got to have faith. And it's this wafty idea of faith. No, our faith must be in something, namely someone. Our faith must have an object, and that is Jesus Christ. And so that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to. He's saying, have trust in me. Lay hold of me by trust. In fact, he's saying, trust me just as you would trust in the creator of this world. That's why he's saying, believe in God, believe also in me. He's not giving them two different options. He's saying, as you believe in God the Father, you're believing in me. As you believe in me, you're believing in God the Father because we are one. That's what he will go on to say. So trust in me. That's what Christ is saying in the midst of their uncertainty and their turmoil, he is not calling them to have blind faith. He's not calling them to to, to just have faith. He's saying, take whatever crumb of faith you have and place it entirely in me, in me as a trustworthy and faithful God. And I wonder, are those sweet words to you today? You who would profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, are those sweet words to you, those words of Jesus saying, trust me, trust me, all will be well. Do you take Jesus at his word when he tells you not to be anxious? When he says, look at the birds of the sky, look at the flowers of the field, look how much your father cares for them and how much more worthy are you of care So do not be anxious. Do you take Jesus at his word? 
often our anxiety is driven by uncertainty. We're uncertain about things, so we're driven to anxiety. Or inner turmoil comes because we feel as though things are not in control or perhaps they're controlled by someone with malicious intent. And so we're filled with turmoil. We think things are either out of control or they're being controlled by someone with malicious intent. So if you feel anxiety at work, it's usually because you might feel uncertainty about your job security, or you might feel anxious at work because you have a boss or a colleague and you think that they have ill will toward you. They're unpleasant to be around. And so you're just filled with anxiety as you come to work. And it's really because your framework of that situation is that things are either uncertain or they're controlled by someone with malicious intent. And Jesus is calling his disciples and calling us to the simple but profound reality that everything in this world, without exception, is working its way to his glory and our good. There is nothing outside of his control. Our circumstances are not uncontrolled events heading for disaster, which would have been what it perhaps could have seemed to the disciples that invested so much time with their master. And then all of a sudden he's saying, by the way, I'm going to go and you can't come to where I'm going. And then he's going to go to the cross and it's going to look like defeat. And things seem like they're just spiraling out of control. And Jesus is saying, that's not the case. No way. Regardless of how it looks, that's not the case. Things are perfectly in my control. Our circumstances are in the hands of an all-powerful and gloriously good God who is using them in wonderful ways to accomplish his purpose. And we must lay hold of this truth. We don't simply admire the fact that God is trustworthy. To admire this or to sit back and spectate is kind of like being sick and admiring the medicine in the bottle. You have to consume that medicine. You don't just sit there and admire the look of it. It won't do anything. You have to lay hold of that medicine and consume it. And likewise, we must lay hold of the trustworthiness of our Savior. We must consume it through his word. Our responsibility as those who have seen the trustworthiness of Christ is to lay hold of him in trust. It is to take him at his word. It is to... to live out the, the famous words of that hymn that we will sing at the end of our time today, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord." How wonderfully comforting is it to have seen the trustworthiness of our Savior and then to take him at his word, that when he says things are not out of control, they're in perfect control, we rest in that. It is sweet to trust in Jesus Christ, to take him at his word. And so we take him at his word when he says to us, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled by your circumstances. I'm in control. Now, because Jesus never desires blind faith, he, he even goes beyond uh, what he could. And he explains to the disciples exactly what he is doing and why they do not need to be troubled. He, he elaborates in, in giving them the reasons why they can take him at his word. And so in verse two, Jesus goes on to say, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. These are comforting words. Here's the main point that I'll give now that we'll then see played out. The main point of this is our comfort through all of the troubles of this life is that Jesus assures us of his presence, both now in spirit and later on in the fullness of. That's our comfort through all of the troubles in this life is that Jesus assures us, he guarantees us, we'll see later on how, he guarantees us of his presence in spirit now and in fullness later on. So he begins with explaining that in his father's house, there are many rooms. The picture we should have is, is of this huge mansion, not necessarily numbers of mansions. As If you have a, a KJV Bible, it might say mansions um, as in, in the place of rooms. But the picture we really have is of one large place with many dwellings, many abodes, many rooms, a huge place with many, many dwellings. And the main takeaway that Jesus is saying is, hey, there is ample room in my house for every single one of you. There is an abundance of room for you. That's why Jesus says, if this were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's Jesus saying, if I've told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you, then I'm going to prepare a place for you. My words are not cheap. I don't simply offer cheap hope. If I say I'm going to prepare a place for you, there's going to be abundant room for every single person whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There will be a room with your name on it in that sense, speaking metaphorically. There will be ample room for every follower of Jesus Christ. And so after assuring them that there is ample room, he assures them that even though he has to leave for a time, he's coming back. And so he says in verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is reassuring them that everything he does is intentional. Remember, it could easily seem like things are out of control. After the cross, even after the ascension and the disciples are going about being witnesses, there's a lot of death. There's a great struggle. They're a frail minority and things could easily seem out of control. And Jesus is reassuring them that everything is intentional and they must not depend upon their circumstances after his departure, but they must depend upon his word, which assures them that everything is under control. Now, what is in view here with regard to this place? Jesus is describing this place, saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and take you to myself. What is this place that he is talking about? Well, firstly, when Jesus says he is going to prepare a place, it's not like we should have this picture of Jesus's ascension. And then all of a sudden he's making beds in heaven, creating rooms. That's not the picture that we should have. The preparation is more to do with the reality that because of Christ's work on the cross, There is nothing further that needs to be done. There's no more work of atonement. There's no more things that need to happen for us to have this relational proximity, for us to have this nearness to God. The work of Christ on the cross accomplishes the fullness of redemption for his followers. So Jesus' departure 
actually is what prepares our place. The fact that he departs is to say that the price for sin has been paid in full for your sin and my sin. And there is nothing more that needs to be done for us to have this deep communion with our Savior. We have this place already. What about Jesus coming to take them to himself? Jesus describes, I'm going to come back and and take you to myself. There are multiple aspects where, in one sense, Jesus does come to his disciples. Of course, as he sends the Holy Spirit, in one sense, that's him coming to dwell amongst his followers. Or the death of believers, as believers die. We know that Paul says to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. In that sense, Jesus is coming to his followers. But I would say, what is in view here that Jesus talks about when he says, I come to take you to myself, is really the second coming of Christ, his final return, where Christ will come again to consummate his kingdom and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And I would say this is the full meal. This is our full nearness. This is our great hope that there is coming a day, as Tom prayed for, where everything will be made right, where justice will be served, and we will dwell with our God in an uninhibited way, in unbreakable intimacy. Now we get the foretaste of that meal. If that's the full meal, we get the foretaste of that meal, an appetizer, you might say, through the indwelling spirit within us. We get it through the presence of Christ among us in his church. Jesus says, where two or more gather, there I am in the midst. As we take the Lord's Supper, Christ is present in a particular way amongst his followers. So we get the presence of Christ in special ways. Even those who die get an even greater taste of that, for they are with the Lord. But ultimately, we are all waiting for a greater nearness where we will worship the Lord with glorified physical bodies in unbreakable intimacy. And that is our hope. And that is, as I've said many times before, what we must fight for in order to keep that hope. For we live in a world that constantly shoves our face down so that we would simply focus upon the here and now and fail to have this transcendent hope that goes beyond this world, that goes beyond the physical and the material, to hope in that glorious day of redemption. That is our hope. That's the hope for followers of Jesus. And if that is not your hope, then something has gone wrong. Not to say that we don't care about this world, but that is our ultimate hope. It is what we were made for. This nearness is what Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians 4, when He says, the Lord will descend. He's speaking of uh, the second coming of Christ. The Lord will descend from heaven. There'll be a trumpet sound, the cry of an archangel. And we will be gathered together. We'll be caught up together to meet the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. And there is the emphasis of that passage. So we will always be with the Lord. We can debate until the cows come home about the events that precede that and how it's all going to happen. But what is sure is that our great hope and our great comfort is that Jesus says, I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You will be with me in unbreakable intimacy, in glorious joy, unspeakable joy. This is the emphasis here that we will dwell with our Savior. And the emphasis here is, of course, not so much upon 
the physical location. Rather, it is on the relational proximity, how near we are to the Lord. That's the hope. We have a nearness now as the Spirit of God dwells within us, but we long for that full nearness. We long to taste of that in a greater way. Now, the heavenly home is not so much about a where, but it is about a who, namely who is there, who is with us, and that is Christ. Now, we see this clearer in the confusion that follows with Thomas. So if you look back at verse 4 and verse 5, Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how are we going to get there? If we don't know where you're going, well, how can we get there? How can you find your way to an unknown destination? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, Thomas is still thinking in natural terms. He desires to know the physical location. Tell me where it is you're going, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, Thomas, you know all you need to know about where you're going if you know me. You don't need to know anything more. You know everything you need to know about where you're going if you know me. You don't need to get out your GPS. That's not your purpose. Your purpose, rather, is to grow deeper in this knowledge of who I am. So Jesus can say, you know the way to this home that I'm preparing for you because the destination, the location of this home is about this relational intimacy, this nearness that we have with God. And Jesus says, the only way that you know God is if you've come through me. So if you know me, you know everything you know about this destination. You know everything you need to know because the whole point of it is nearness to your maker, nearness to God. And if you've come through me, then you have come to the living God. That's the point. If we use the GPS analogy, as we trust in Christ and he sends his spirit to dwell within us, it's as though he types in the coordinates to our final destination upon our heart. We're not aware of everything that's going on, but we have those coordinates within us so that our life is on this unstoppable trajectory to our purpose, namely unbreakable intimacy with our God. In fact, in John 14, verse 23, we have the only other use of this word for home. As Jesus talks about, in my father's house are many rooms. There's this idea of a home. The only other time that word is used is in verse 23 of the same chapter where Jesus says, if anyone loves me, and he, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will make our home with him. See, that's how we get a foretaste of this home. I think that there is talking of the indwelling spirit, which is why Jesus in John 14 will go on to speak of the Holy Spirit's ministry in comforting our, our, our hearts, in dwelling with us. See, what is it that assures us of this future home? What is it that gives us great comfort in the midst of all of the troubles and anxieties of this life, in the midst of cancer diagnoses and financial distress, 
homelessness, whatever it may be, what is it that comforts followers of Jesus and assures them that there is something far greater waiting for them? It is that God has sent his spirit to dwell within us and remind us that we are his children. That's the work of the spirit, that we have the spirit within us that gives us this cry that says, Father, Father, the spirit dwelling within us that reminds us that we are his children. And if we are God's children, he's going to make sure his children come home. He's going to make sure that every child comes home. And so genuine followers of Jesus long for this future home because Christ has given us a foretaste. That's why we long for it, because we have the spirit where the father and the son have come to make their home amongst us in the spirit. And so we all of a sudden have this taste for our future home. That's what our adoption accomplishes. Paul says in Romans 8, 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fear. You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Father, Father. It's like a cry of our home. We long to be with our Father. There was this wonderful story of a, a, a Colombian orphan, actually, a 10-year-old boy named Sebastian. And he went viral on YouTube when he was adopted. But there was this whole process uh, leading up to the adoption where an American family wanted to adopt him. But because of the failed adoptions, they never actually tell the prospective adoptee that they're going to be adopted, lest their hopes get uh, dragged through the mud. So everything, uh, Sebastian was not aware of anything. And it just shows this beautiful process of him getting to know uh, the family but not realizing that he was going to be adopted. And the final moment where he knew that he was going to be adopted was where the family on video uh, did this, you know, very um, schmick presentation. And, and they asked him to his family. And then he had the papers right there in front of him where he was going to sign so that he would become adopted. And it was at that moment when he signed that he knew he had a new home. He knew he had a family, this boy who had never known a family, this boy who had been in an orphanage since he was born for 10 years. And finally, he signed those papers and he knew he had a new home. He was assured of his home. And so it is with us as we trust in Jesus Christ and as the spirit dwells within us. That is what assures us of our home. That is what assures us of our adoption. We are God's children. Now, if I can just before we end, come back to Thomas's confusion. Thomas stumbles over where Jesus is going and how they could possibly get there if, if they have no idea where they're supposed to go. And Thomas is just thinking in natural physical terms. Thomas is always the, the realist. He must know. He's obviously famous for being the one who says, unless I see the holes in his hands, I will not believe. And unless I touch his side, I will not believe. And of course, he must see. And here, a similar thing is happening. Thomas must see because he's thinking in natural terms. He's having the same issue that the Samaritan woman had in John 4. If you remember where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman and the, the whole debate goes as to where we're supposed to worship. Do we worship uh, on Mount Gerizim in Samaria or do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus says it's not about a physical mountain, but God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That is to say the whole physical location doesn't mean anything anymore, but we're going to worship the Lord because the spirit is going to dwell within us so that our whole lives will be full of worship to the Lord. 
Now here is one of the great stumbling blocks to natural man. See, we like to reduce our religion down to physical, tangible to-do lists. This idea of things that we do to justify ourselves in our religion. So most people think, well, tell me what I'm supposed to do to look like a Christian and I'll do those things and then I can just continue on with my life. You want me to show up to church uh, twice on a Sunday? If I do that, does that mean I get the rest of my week to myself? You want me to serve on a cafe team or the kids team? If I do that, is that what makes me a Christian? If I don't have sex before marriage, if I do this and do that, is that what makes me a Christian? It's a great temptation for natural man. We like to reduce our religion down to a basic level of morality and these tangible tasks that we do and everything is to keep God at arm's length. That's the point of why we do it because we then justify ourselves and we feel secure in our religion because if we do this thing, if we show up to church each Sunday, then that means God can't ask much more of me because I'm doing what he requires of me and then I get the rest of my life to myself. And if I attend the prayer meeting, then he definitely can't ask a Tuesday night of me. We, we, we like to think that, that our life is about this to-do list and we do it to keep God at arm's length. It's in order to justify ourselves. And Jesus, on the other hand, says, I don't want your Sundays. I don't want your service on the welcome team. I don't want your quiet time for 10 minutes in the morning. I want everything. I want your life. I want every aspect of your soul. I demand it because I am your Lord and your Savior. You hand it over to me and I will give you my very life. But if you cling to your Sundays, if you cling to your self-righteousness, you have no share in me. You have nothing at all. And that's the reality, that's the heart of the gospel and religion. The beautiful heart of the gospel is that the most moral church attender, you could be someone who attends church week in, week out, and you are no different to the most wicked, evil, pagan the world has ever known in the sense that you both must come to Jesus in the exact same way. There is no other way to the Father than through the Son. So the most moral person in this world who has not trusted in Jesus, even that person who attends church every single week, must hold hands with the most vile and wretched, evil person and say, nothing in my hands do I bring, only to the cross do I cling. And that's the glorious hope of the gospel that we are desperate beggars who lay no claim of merit. Everything is stripped away. And then we come to Jesus Christ and we see the life that he is offering us. And we rid ourselves of every sense of self-righteousness, not that we had any righteousness anyway. And we come to the cross of Christ. And those who have received this salvation, those who have come to that point of realizing their desperate need and their wretchedness before a holy God and who have received the grace of God, their life is no longer characterized by a list of do's and don'ts. 
Their life is no longer reduced down to a moral task list. Rather, their life is full of such grateful adoration that their Savior would shower upon them such grace when they spat in His face. And their life is full of worshipful adoration that is all about drawing nearer to this Savior, drawing near to our Lord. And so as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not merely giving some obscure statement. Uh, Rather, he is saying, "I, I am the way because the whole purpose of life can only ever be found if you come through me. There's no other way. There's no other way to know God. There's no other way to experience salvation. There's no other way to know peace than if you become like that desperate beggar and come through me. So I am the way. I am the truth. Because every other form of life outside of Christ is a lie. It's counterfeit. It's deceptive. It's a false reality. It's not true. The only truth is found in Christ. He is the life because it is only in him that we truly live. Everything outside of Christ is death and decay, but everything in him is life and life abundantly. So religion is never to be reduced down to this list of do's and don'ts that we do really in order to preserve ourselves. Rather, it is where We do everything in order to grow deeper in our understanding of this God who has loved us in such a way that we see in the cross of Christ. I love it how Paul describes it in Philippians 1, 21, when he he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live, Christ. That's life. Christ. It's like if you asked Paul, if you sat down and interviewed him about his life, and you said, Paul, what's your purpose in life? He would say, Christ. Well, Paul, what do you want to be like when you're older? Like Christ. Where do you want to live? In Christ. Everything is about Christ. Christ consumes his life. Everything is about serving and worshipping and following Jesus Christ. And here is our great comfort. Here is why our hearts do not need to be troubled. Here is why we can take great peace regardless of the horrible circumstances we find ourselves in in this life. Our comfort through the troubles of this life is that that Christ assures us of his very presence with us in spirit now and in the fullness of thereafter. And if this is so, then we have a relationship with a God which lifts us completely above our circumstances so that we are no longer tossed about by the troubles of this world, but we are set firmly upon a rock, upon a solid rock. This has always been relevant, but it it really seems to be increasingly relevant to our day, which is full of anxiety. And most of you know, I work as the chaplain at this school. And so I work with a lot of teenagers and young people. And there is certainly an increase in anxiety, regardless of how you define it. And I realize it's quite a loose term that's thrown around a lot now. And I don't believe it is so much that the troubles in our world have increased, but rather it's that our exposure to the troubles has dramatically increased. We see a lot more now because of this hyper-connected world. And then our ability to cope with them has decreased. And so the result of this is that we are either driven to anxiety or we're driven to apathy. Apathy is what I see far more of in teenagers these days. Apathy, where we're just indifferent to the troubles of this world. We're indifferent 
to our spiritual state before a holy God. We're indifferent to what we believe about life and death. So we're either riddled with anxiety over the instability and uncertainty of life, or we are plagued with apathy because we have all the resources in this world to numb ourselves, to really numb ourselves to this place of apathy. And both anxiety and apathy are completely unsustainable and wrong in this life. And so the only solution, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, the only solution is to know the presence of the one who knows every single hair of your head. The only solution for for apathy or anxiety is to know the presence of the one who set 100 billion stars into existence in this galaxy. The only solution is to know the presence of the one who is utterly trustworthy and who has shown his trustworthiness again and again, most uh, helpfully in the cross of Christ in giving up his son. And so he shows I'm a trustworthy God for I come through with my promises. And that God tells us that our circumstances are not uncontrolled events leading to disaster. They're not. Whether it is the the death of a loved one, whether it is a, a medical diagnosis, whether it is the complete breakdown of your life, that's not an uncontrolled event that's spiraling toward disaster. No, it's being worked in some glorious and mysterious way for good and the glory of God. And so the solution to troubled hearts is to know the presence of an all-powerful Savior and to have an assurance, to have an assurance that regardless of your circumstances, there is coming a day where all will be well. Christ has prepared the place. We have the foretaste of that place right now, and we long for the full banquet of it. We have the coordinates to our final destination secured in our hearts by the spirit who dwells within us. And we are on this unstoppable trajectory toward glory and toward our home. And so we do not let our hearts be troubled. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we're gonna sing and we're gonna sing it as well with my soul. And most of you would know the story of of the song where Horatio Spafford uh, wrote this song about 200 years ago after um, his family. He had sent his his wife and his daughters uh, across the Atlantic Sea and he received a telegram uh, while uh, I believe he was on his way over saying that the the boat had sunk, uh, his daughters had died, his wife had survived, And as he received that news, and as he was traveling over the very seas that swallowed up his young daughters, who he would never see again, at least in this life, he wrote uh, the words for it is well with my soul. And he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, the same sea billows that drowned his daughters, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why can we say that? Because we have a trustworthy God. We have a savior who has shown us why he is trustworthy. And he says, trust in me.